Good morning, everybody. Um, today, we are doing the second of our Between Series interludes for the year on the book of Psalms. Six weeks ago, when we talked about Psalm number one as part of this series, we introduced the big idea here, which um, is one we're going to return to in between each of our other series throughout the year. And we said then that the book of Psalms in the Old Testament is first an emotionally earnest century-spanning guide to remembering God's promises and worshiping Him as we wait for Him to redeem and restore His creation. And then second, we said that this book, Psalms, works by giving voice to many different expressions of our feelings in that waiting, from lament and grief to doubt to joy to gratitude, and that it gives voice to those expressions and then ties those expressions to the cultural story of Israel and specifically to Israel's hope in the Messiah. Which is all a pretty long way of saying that we're reading the book of Psalms together this year so that we can learn to wait on God by reading over the shoulders of people who've waited before us. Now, if you've been following along in our year-long Psalms reading project this year, you've already encountered a wide variety of the kinds of feelings that go along with this waiting, from overwhelming joy and remembering the things God has done and continues to do, even to deep anger and frustration in these moments when God seems to be absent in the psalmist's life. If there's one key takeaway in this entire series, um, it might be this. Whatever you're feeling as you wait on God, whatever you're feeling as you wait on God, isn't new. And even if what you're feeling is angry or sad, what you're feeling is also okay. What we can be challenged to do, however, in light of all that truth, is no matter what we're feeling, to have the boldness to take those feelings to God in confidence that God can handle it. In fact, he wants to hear how we're feeling, whether it's pleasant or not. He loves us, all of us, just as we are. We hear that over and over in scripture. And being vulnerable with God, just like when we're vulnerable in our relationships with one another, that vulnerability is one of the things, one of the ways that we build depth in our relationship and trust with him. I'll be bold here and go one step further. It's also, I think, one of the ways that we discover what it means to be his beloved children. So if you, you know, if this is all you get from today's message, the encouragement today is pretty simple. Just do it. That's the encouragement. Read the Psalms this year. Read along with us every week with the reading guide. And then follow the Psalms examples cry out to God, ask for him. And then, and this is so important, when you do that, when you cry out to God, pay attention to his faithfulness to you in response to those cries. With all my heart, I believe that God is here, that God is with us, that God is for us. And if this project helps you encounter and then believe in those truths Two, well, that's what we're doing all this for, right? So 
If that's the backdrop for the series, then the question is, what about this Sunday? What are we going to cover? Well, this week, I thought that we could take a look together at Psalm 8, which, although not one of my personal favorites in its entirety, has one of my very favorite verses um, in all the Bible inside of it. Um, Psalm 8 is pretty short, so we're going to start by reading all of it together here. It goes like this. Psalm 8. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So the big idea in this song, the line that's at the beginning and then is repeated there at the very end, is that God is majestic. God is majestic. Now, I'm not going to do that thing that I always do where I perseverate about the definition of a word here. But I will say that Majestic is an interesting quality for the psalmist to ascribe to God. When we think of majesty, especially if you're a fan of Netflix's The Crown, which Meredith and I caught up on uh, a few months back, when you think of the word majestic, you might think of royalty, like his or her majesty, as in your majesty, right? And then like the bowing. And the idea here, when we use that word in that context, is that majesty is this quality or this character of having a kind of unsurpassed dignity in a particular culture, of being most worthy of honor or most worthy of tribute, more so than anyone or anything else. It's actually kind of messed up that earthly kings and queens expect people to feel that way about them, to use that word uh, in reference to them. But... So it goes. In any case, here, what the psalmist most wants to say to God, and remember that what we're doing as we read a psalm is we're reading over the shoulder of that poet as they're bringing this earnest expression of their feelings before God. What we can learn here is, and what the psalmist is saying, is that God really does deserve every tribute and every word of praise that he gets. That God is majestic. He's the one who deserves the praise. To quote this theme song from Karate Kid, he is the best around. Which is to say that God, more so than any of us, is tremendous, that he's worthy, he's dignified. That's kind of the big idea of the psalm here. So if that's the big idea of the psalm, what evidence or reasoning does the rest of the psalm supply for why that is true? Why, in other words, is God majestic. Well, in verses 1 and 2, the psalmist writes that God has, quote, set his glory in the heavens, which means, I think, that the scales 
and the wonders of the sky make obvious to us how overwhelmingly great and even how beautiful God must be. This makes sense to me because this is probably the single most common way that human beings now or at any point in our history actually encountered wonder at God and his creation. It's almost a universal experience. We look up at the sky at night and we see the twinkling of millions of stars all glittering up there in the Milky Way, and we can't look away from them. It's outrageous how beautiful a night sky can be. And then, as if the night sky isn't enough, in the day we can also look up at the blue of the sky and the beauty of the clouds. And we can consider even the absolute craziness of the sun. I was actually thinking about this just the other day when we had that stretch of really warm weather last week. We had left the front door of our house open and our dog, Meg, was sleeping and snoring in the pool of sunshine right there in the entranceway. And I kept thinking, like, the sun is an insane thing. The sun is, in its essence, a bajillion nuclear bombs going off all at the same time, constantly. It is absolutely inconceivable in its danger and in its violence. And yet here we are, just far enough away from all of it, that we have a hard time imagining anything more comforting and wonderful and peaceful even than closing our eyes and just feeling the heat of sunshine on our skin in the springtime. That's crazy to me when we think about it. And so the point here is that both in the night and in the day, if we pay attention to them, we all find over and over again throughout our lives, no matter what we believe or don't believe about God or any of that, we find this tangible evidence of God's glory up there in the heavens, where God is just at work being so much more extra than he has any reason to be. And this this is the psalmist's first point about God's majesty. If you want to understand God's majesty, just look up. And then, after that, in verse 2, the psalmist says something that's really weird, I think. The psalmist says, quote, Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. This, he writes, is another reason why God is majestic. But what in the world does that mean? The common take uh, among authors of Bible commentaries is that the psalmist is looking at the extreme ends of the spectrum when it comes to how God's glory is proclaimed. If on the one end of the spectrum, God's greatness is test testified to by the sun and the stars, these emblems of enormity and the size and scale of the cosmos. On the other end of the spectrum, the psalmist says there are the simple songs and the, the simple experiences of praise that come from children. Which is to say, I think, that it doesn't take a scientist or a king or a high priest 
to recognize God's glory. Even children who know nothing of doctrine or of orthodoxy have the ability to see his greatness and to sing of it. God's godness is, well, it's obvious. It's obvious to everybody. Which, again, I think if you think about it, is pretty incredible. A quick illustration maybe to get at this point. Over the last year, our family has tried pretty hard to keep up some kind of a Sunday routine. Maybe some of you are in the same boat. And so every week on Sunday morning, I go out and I get us donuts from somewhere. And then I bring them home and we all have donuts and we watch the children's service videos together and answer the questions. And then after that, Meredith and I watch the adult service together. And over and over again, over the past year now, I have tried to get my oldest daughter, Evangeline, who's 12, to sit in with us for the adult part of the church. But week in and week out, like Evangeline just will not do it. You're too boring, Dad, is what she always says. And honestly, Evangeline is right. Each week, I'm trying in these messages to to talk in a way that can make sense to everybody that's in our church, from a teenager like Evangeline to people of you in the congregation who are yourselves former pastors and theologians. But It would seem that as I'm trying to hit this scale from the teenager to the retired theologian, that I, for one, am not sufficiently majestic as a speaker, which is to say that I can't talk in a way that reaches both ends of the the spectrum at the same time. But in verses 1 and 2, I think the psalmist is trying to point out that God can talk in that way, that God's goodness and his dignity and his majesty written in the heavens makes sense to everybody all the time, no matter who they are. That's why I think the the verse says that it's through the praise of children and infants that God has established a stronghold against his enemies or those who would deny or discount him or his existence. Because there's just no room on the spectrum for deep doubts to take hold because God's capable of covering the whole of it. So I think that's the first reason here that God's name to the psalmist is majestic because his glory is big enough that even the smartest ones of us never get a full handle on it, but it's also simple enough that even children can get a sense of it. So where do we go from here? Well, next, the psalmist gets to those verses that I said before at the beginning were some of my very favorite ones in the Bible. The psalmist writes, quote, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? If that first point is that God is bigger than both extreme ends of the spectrum, that what he has done in creation is majestic and it's overwhelming. The second point here is that even so, even though it's overwhelming, God is still mindful of us. And it's worth pausing sometimes. It's worth pausing like we're doing right now as we read over the shoulder of the psalmist here 
to recognize something that we may not consider often, which is that there is no real reason for that to be true. There's no reason for it to be true. What do we sense to be true about God if we believe that He is the one who made the entire universe? Well, I think we sense that He is a creator, right? That He's brought into being over millions of years the enormous and the rich tapestry of all things. That if God is God, God has made innumerable galaxies that he's filled those innumerable galaxies with innumerable stars, and those stars are surrounded by innumerable planets. And at least on this one little planet, even here, he's filled this planet with incalculable, incalculable and, and unfathomably diverse life, from the smallest cells in the depths of the oceans to the insects and the fish and the birds and the animals of our own realm and scale even to the ecosystems which together, which weave together to support the flourishing of all these other things. And among all of those things, all of those systems, not the most numerous, not the largest, not even the most complex, but the most treasured of them is us. Human beings, rich in diversity ourselves, and yet chosen by God to listen to Him, to be loved by Him, even to be pursued for relationship by Him. So what does it say about God for there to be so much here, so much all around us, and yet for us to be so deeply cherished by Him. One can imagine at least two other scenarios, right? First, we could be the only thing that God made. Like, we don't really need all this richness beyond ourselves if we're the only ones that really matter, do we, right? Or, scenario number two, everything that God made can equally matter to Him. And the gospel could have gone out not just to us as humans, but the gospel could have gone out to bluefin tuna and hummingbirds and katydids and every other kind of thing as well. But that's not what happened. Neither of those are what happened. Instead, things are both richly diverse and we are uniquely cherished by God. This tells us that one thing we can know with confidence about God is that He is surprisingly and even scandalously intimate in His love for us. And that, that surprising, scandalous, intimate love, the psalmist says here, is majestic. The third point that the psalmist makes comes from the remainder of the psalm, which teaches us that God is not just mindful of us, but even more than that, God has given us dominion over His own wonders in creation. 
The psalmist writes in verses 5 through 8, You have made human beings a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. So what we learn here, what the psalmist is wondering at now, is that not only are we intimately loved and cherished by God, uniquely loved and cherished by God, but also God entrusts us with other things that he also loves too. The psalmist is pointing out that we are responsible for taking care of God things, God creatures, a God planet, a God cosmos. When I was growing up, a story for us here to help make this make sense, I think. When I was growing up, my dad had his car. Maybe you had a parent with like their car too, the one that you never did family stuff in. It was their their baby. And, and in my dad's case, his baby was a 1969 Buick Skylark that he had bought with money from mowing lawns when he was in high school. And my whole life growing up, my dad was always working on that car and updating that car and painting it and refurbishing it and making it beautiful. And he was doing all that because his car, this 1969 Buick Skylark, was really special to him. And then in 1997, when I was 15 years old, my dad sold that car to me for one quarter a quarter that he kept and recently gave back to me, as a matter of fact. And with that quarter, my my dad gave me his baby, his cherished car. And you probably know where this story's going, right? I promptly rear-ended a BMW on my way to McDonald's and totaled it. My dad had entrusted me with his car, and then I failed to take adequate care of it. And of course, in a sense, this is what we do too when it comes to the creation that God has entrusted us with. But even though I imagine you can kind of see where that thread might go, there's more to this story that I think can help us out too if we, if we get there first. But to get there, I want us to actually step back for a moment from what might be a bit of a selfish frame of mind here where we just worry about how we do or we don't take care of the world around us. And instead, I want us to ask this other related question. And the question is, if God really is the God of verses 1 through 4 we've been talking about for the last 20 minutes, if he really is majestic, then what does God's example of dominion teach us about what it actually means to take care of things? What is God's example of dominion that we see around us, but also in verses 1 through 4? What do we learn from the example of dominion about what dominion for us over his creation ought to look like? To, to go back to the story about my dad, after I wrecked that car, um, he was pretty mad at first, I remember that, but then my dad did something amazing as I look back on it. Um, shortly after I wrecked his car, we went together to a junkyard 
and my dad found another 1969 Buick Skylark that was all wrecked up. And he bought that Skylark, and then he had that Skylark, which didn't run, towed to our house. And then we set that new one, or that old one, right next to the wrecked one, that, and then the one that, you know, the wrecked one that my dad had had for 30 years. And then for the next, I think it was, I don't know, eight or nine months, my dad and I worked together on swapping out all the broken parts from the car that I'd almost totaled with the, the matching parts on the junk car. And after months and months of that, well, we got, we got his baby up and running again. And I tell this story because I think what you see here is that my dad's dominion wasn't just about who owned the car or whose fault it was that the car got messed up. My dad's dominion included walking alongside me and teaching me how he would restore something. And in this way, my dad showed me, I think, what dominion really means. Which is to say that it's not just power over something. Dominion is an active passion for seeing something else flourish. God is so great, God is so majestic, that He invests Himself at great cost in us. You can't separate those things. He is so majestic, so worthy of honor and dignity, that He invests Himself in us at great cost which is to say that we are the example that God gives us for what right dominion is all about. If the way God loves us is an example of how we're supposed to love one another, how we're supposed to love our neighborhoods, how we're supposed to love our environment, how we're supposed to love our world, of how we're supposed to love the cosmos, if God is showing us what it means to have dominion in his treatment of us, then what radical love have we been invited to share in those places with those people? The full majesty that the psalmist sees here is first that observable scope of God's greatness in the heavens for you know, little children and high priests. And then the second thing is the, the surprising intimacy of that great God's love for humans specifically. And then third, this shocking, loving generosity of God's dominion. At the beginning, we said that reading Psalms is this chance to listen to how other people in the past have talked to God. Where, where we're looking over the shoulder of this psalmist and, and getting to see what their emotional honesty with God looked like and, and hopefully then to, to follow suit ourselves. And so it's worth asking, what do we see here? What is the psalmist bringing to God in terms of their, their sincerity? And I think what we see is we see wonder. We see humility. 
we even see a little bit of fear. In a word, I think what we see is awe. Awe. And what can we learn from doing all this? What can we learn from, from reading over the psalmist's shoulder and seeing their awe towards God? I think that what we can learn is we can learn to better accept the limits of our own understanding while also feeling challenged and even joyful about how we are called to act in this world that God has made. We can learn from God. We can learn from the example of Jesus what it is to have godly dominion. And perhaps we can begin to apply that today in our own lives by genuinely asking ourselves, where is my dominion? What has God entrusted me with? Is it a partner or a spouse? Is it my friendships? Is it my parents or, or my children? Is my dominion, the, the, is the dominion, the creation of God that God has then entrusted me with? Is it my home? Is it an actual piece of land somewhere? Is it, is it a neighborhood? Is it the friends and the neighbors who live in that neighborhood? Where has God placed me? Where has God placed you? And what or who lives in that place? I want you to actually fix your answers in your mind. Pause and really think about it. Where is your dominion? Who and what lives there? And then, with concrete people and places in mind, I want you to ask, I want you to ask, how can I love my dominion in a way that blossoms out from God's love for me? How can I love my dominion in a way that blossoms out from God's love for me? As you turn that over today, as you hopefully turn it over in the week ahead, you might want to think of three things. I think the psalm here challenges us in three specific ways that we can review. And they're built on those three pieces of evidence the psalmist provides for how and why God is majestic. The first is this, we need to try to reach everybody as best we can. In the same way that God reaches everybody, his glory is obvious to everybody. We need to try to reach everybody as best we can. And the second thing is this. We need to accept intimacy with others. That if God shows us in his love for us this, this majestic ability to, to focus in and to cherish his creation, us among all of his creation, then how can we both get better at accepting intimacy from God or even from others in our life and at the same time by giving ourselves more freely and more openly both to him and to others how do we become more intimate and then third we need to model if not the the radical open-handed generosity of God then at least the generosity of my dad when I wrecked his car. 
We can resist our tendency towards self-absorption. And instead, we can experience and embrace each other. And we can experience and embrace who and what God has made. And we can experience and embrace all that God in His majesty is connected together in this world we live in. It's connected to us in this world we live in. So that's really the challenge today. How do we, how do we more rightly live in those connections? I'll pray for us, and then we'll continue in worship today. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your majesty, for being majestic. Thank you for giving us a window into that, a glimpse of that. God, you don't have to pay attention to us. When we consider the works of your hands, what are we that you are mindful of us? It's a rhetorical question, and the answer, of course, is we're cherished. We're your children. You love us, not because of something inherently special about us, but because you've chosen us to love. And not just to love, but to share your dominion. God, I pray that we will be better stewards of that, that we'll be more faithful to the places and the people um, that you've put us in relationship with. Help us to take small steps towards that this week, God. Help us to take small steps towards more vulnerability and intimacy with each other, towards better stewardship of the, of the places that you've placed us in. God, really all of this comes down to an to a incredibly difficult but but central prayer request, God, which is just that you'll give us your eyes to see the world that we live in. Give us your heart to love it well. Thank you for being patient with us. Thank you for cherishing and loving us. Thank you for drawing this community of people together um, to care and love for one another too. We're grateful for the privilege of being a part of your creation. In your son's name, amen.